Warning, this show is about true crime and its contents may not be appropriate for children. This is the Crimecasters Network with Alicia Sophias and Ronnie Dahl, two rogue reporters breaking newsroom rules to take you behind the crime scene tape. Cheers, Crimecasters. This case is like an over-the-top lifetime movie. But it's not Hollywood, it's real life, and it may involve the worst way to die out of any other case we've covered. And it's even worse because it couldn't have happened to a better person. Meet the ultimate nice guy, Timothy Schuster. Good job, two kids, married almost 20 years to an intelligent, successful woman, beautiful home in an upscale neighborhood in Central California. Life is good. Until the early 2000s, and when it rains, it Horrors. Teenage daughter is going through a rebellious stage. Then your wife tells you, pack up and get out. And when you move into a new place, someone breaks in and takes some random stuff. Now you're going through a bitter divorce and custody battle. It can't get much worse, right? Well, out of the blue, you get laid off from your stable hospital job, and then you disappear. And pretty soon, your estranged wife is going to get a nickname, the Acid Queen of California. And why she earned that title is the stuff of your nightmares. Oh, here we go. It begins just like any other good old divorce story. Tim and Larissa Schuster are fighting. Fighting for custody of their 12-year-old son, Tyler. Fighting over their possessions. Fighting over the business. The works, you name it, they are fighting over it. It comes to a head when someone breaks into Tim's new place and steals some really random things. Random is a perfect way to describe it. Right? (laughs) We're talking wicker baskets and mixing bowls. But the thief leaves all the valuables. Around the same time, Larissa starts leaving voicemails on Tim's machine. Yes, there were still answering machines back then. These are not, sorry, I was wrong, let's get back together messages. They are more, you aren't a real man, you effing impotent wimp. You better effing watch out. See, Larissa was always the dominant one in the relationship, in control of everything, made the most money, bossed him around. Tim was more passive. He really was the Mr. Mom. And she did not respect that. She wanted a man's man. And she never missed an opportunity to tell him that. Back to those messages, though. It was, bully, bully, bully. Oh, and I want my damn mixing bowls, baskets, and grandma's doilies back, or else. And many of these cases were We're talking about the end of relationships where things get heated, but their relationship wasn't always bad. No, Larissa and Tim were in love once back in Missouri, where they both grew up and went to college. They fall in love, get married, and eventually move west to California for work. Larissa is smart, really smart, like biochemist smart. In the late 90s, she opens her own lab, Central California Research Laboratories, where she and her team analyze pesticides, crops, soils, which is a home run in that area with so much farming there. The lab keeps acid on hand, including hydrochloric, sulfuric, and acidic, but they didn't go through very much. Like maybe they would use one bottle in the entire year. But in the summer of 2003, all of a sudden, Larissa orders two cases of hydrochloric acid and one case of sulfuric acid, 
each case is six bottles. Each bottle is two and a half liters, so larger than like a soda bottle. It's the second weird thing to show up at the lab. A couple months before this, a big blue barrel arrives. You know those 55-gallon drums? This one has a lid, and people at the lab are kind of confused because that's not the type they use. It's especially unnerving when your boss jokes around, hey, uh, you think a body will fit in here? Ha, ha, ha. Awkward. Uh, totally awkward. I mean, that actually happens. So back to summer, July specifically, while Larissa's career is booming, Tim's comes to a grinding halt. He is a registered nurse turned supervisor at St. Agnes Hospital. And on Wednesday, July 9th, he gets laid off. He's a glass half full kind of guy. So he has dinner with his buddies, one of whom also got laid off that day from the hospital. So, you know, they're chatting about it a bit. The next day, Thursday, is their exit interviews. And afterward, he is meeting up with his friends again for breakfast at IHOP. I don't know what it is, Alicia. What is it about pancakes? It seems to make everything better. I was just going to say, makes everything better. I don't think that was the case this time. Double the <laughs> syrup. Yeah, definitely not this time because Tim is a no-show. He's a super punctual guy, reliable, never late. So they know something's up. Then they find out he also didn't show up at the hospital. Time to panic. One of his friends heads to Tim's house, but he's not there. What is there, though? His truck, his wallet, his cell phone. It's sitting on the dresser. It's not good. Meanwhile, at the lab, Larissa shows up that morning with a sore shoulder and back. Must have been that workout she had earlier in the week, she says. Oh, and that blue barrel seems to be missing. And there's a bottle of chloroform on top of the acid cabinet. They don't even use chloroform in the lab. But nothing to see here, folks. Let's just resume our normal laboratory activities. Tim's friends are freaking out now. As soon as they're allowed to file a missing persons report after that dreaded 24-hour period, they do. So that is Friday morning, and Clovis police are on it. An officer goes to Tim's house, and after a bit of a search, sees a gun tucked under a couch cushion. Okay, Ronnie, I just vacuumed under my cushions literally yesterday. I found two pieces of popcorn, a nickel, and three bones that my dog hid. Okay, no loaded weapons. Yeah, this is really <laughs> off for so many people because Tim's son stays at the house. So he's not going to keep the gun out like that. Detectives come back that afternoon and they find Tim's briefcase with a tape recorder inside. And when they hit play, whew. It's a series of those F-bomb-filled voicemails from his ex. Seems he was collecting evidence for the divorce and custody cases. And when they examine his cell phone, what do you know? There was one call coming in at 2.02 a.m. Thursday from, you guessed it, Larissa. It's time to bring wifey in for questioning. She shows up looking like a soccer mom, a yellow and white summer outfit. She's put together well, except for her scuffed up knee. Wonder what that's all about. Oh, a gardening mishap? Okay. And when did you last call Tim? Uh, I didn't call him. 
there was a call. No, it wasn't me. Are you sure? Yeah, I mean, I was watching a movie with Tyler and fell asleep on my phone. You know what? I may have hit the speed dial button and it called Tim accidentally. You know, I noticed something like that. But yeah, do you have that phone with you? No, no, I did not bring it. Where is it? It's at home. That's when the detective says, excuse me, I'll be right back. It's Clovis Police Sergeant Vince Weibert, and he's no dummy either. He's not a biochemist or anything, but he's a street smart cop, and he has a hunch. So he heads outside, and you won't believe what he sees on the dashboard of Larissa's Lexus. Oh, she wasn't even smart enough to hide it. Her phone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Strike one. We'll hear more about that straight from the detective soon. But now it's time to introduce you to James Fagoni because he's about to come into play here. James is Larissa's 21-year-old errand boy. He's 21. How old is Larissa again? She is 43. At this time, James is a manny on steroids, though. He's her lab assistant at first, and then he starts doing chores for her. He's babysitting her son, taking care of the dogs, doing even some light yard work. Okay, don't tell my husband, but (laughs) where can I get one of those? We all need one of those, right? And in the newsroom, we always thought maybe, of course, there was more to this relationship. We called him her boy toy, but... That was just a rumor, never confirmed. And while Larissa is getting questioned by PD, James is watching Tyler. That night, James ends up in the hot tub with Larissa and a bottle of Chardonnay. It sounds like the start of a great weekend, except there's another person in the backyard with them, and he's not able to enjoy himself. Next morning, Saturday... One of Larissa's workers, Leslie, sees a little blurb in the Fresno Bee on page B2. Can you read it? It says, a search on for missing man. Clovis police are looking for a 45-year-old man missing since Wednesday night. Timothy Schuster left his friend's Fresno home about 9.30 p.m. Hasn't been seen or heard from since. His car is still parked in his garage and detectives have found no evidence of foul play. He is six feet tall, 200 pounds. Call police with information. Did your station uh, cover this yet? No, not at all, because usually these are followed up by the person is found safe. It was a misunderstanding. No alarm bells yet. But Leslie is feeling some kind of way about it. And it's going to get worse by the end of the day. Larissa's bestie, Tammy, sees some red flags too. She's at Larissa's house talking about how crazy all of this is. After she gives her the scoop about the police interrogation, Larissa is like, Hey, do you mind staying here for a while? I need to pick up Tyler's bike from James's house and get a bunch of stuff done before I head out to vacation tomorrow. A vacation? Her husband? Her children's father is missing? Friends, family, police are out searching and she's going on vacation? Yes. Okay, just make it sure. Yep, especially when she's taking their son to the happiest place on earth. She's taking Tyler to Disney World, then Missouri to see some relatives. Not Disneyland, mind you, which is only a few hours from them, but Disney World in Florida. Remember the movie Goodfellas, that famous scene where Ray Liotta's character is rushing around all day while the feds chase him? Literally, that chopper is flying overhead and he's trying to lose them. 
Larissa pings around like that, and detectives follow her, but at one point, she's going so fast, they can't even keep up. Along the way, she calls Leslie. Hey, girl, I know it's the weekend and all, but I need some help at the lab. Yes, the gas chromatograph is acting up again. Are you impressed I said that? properly. Uh, When Leslie shows up, Larissa comes clean. The chromatograph isn't broken after all. But I told a little white lie to police and in case they're tapping my phone, I had to talk to you here. All right. This is when I'm out the door. But the ever so loyal Leslie is like, what do you need? Well, can you hold on to this box of papers and please pay this month's bill for The storage unit I had you rent. Oh, the storage unit. Tell us more. Well, the previous year, Larissa asked her to rent a storage unit in Fresno to put some of her personal belongings in that she doesn't want Tim to get his hands on. It seemed harmless at the time. So Leslie leaves the lab, but Larissa follows her home because she has one more favor. Do you or anyone you know have a truck with a lift gate? I have a piece of lawn equipment I need you to move. No? Oh, well, can you please rent one for me? Again, Leslie does it. She goes to U-Haul, rents a moving van with a ramp and dolly. Larissa says, you're the best. Be back soon. But when she comes back to return it, Larissa looks like she's been through it. She's sweaty, scraped up. There's blood on her shoe. And red flag alert, there aren't enough miles on the van to have gone to Larissa's place in Clovis and back to Fresno. Before she can protest, there is one last favor. If the police talk to you, be honest, but can you just not tell them about the storage unit? Okay, thanks, bye. With that, Larissa goes home and she and Tyler fly out of town early the next morning. It's Sunday and Leslie and Tammy are doing some serious soul searching. Tammy cannot believe she is in this position with her best friend. Could her BFF really have been involved in her husband's disappearance? The next day, Leslie can't take it. She goes to police and tells them everything she knows even, yes, about the storage unit. By now, detectives have questioned James Fagoni. While he doesn't come clean completely just yet, he does tell them he did help Larissa break into Tim's place the year before to get some of her things back. Which solves the great mixing bowl slash wicker basket gate once and for all. And with the new information, police execute three search warrants at the exact same time. One for the lab, one for Louisa's house, and one for security, Pacific Storage, Unit A-182. Uh-oh. Before they even step inside, the smell hits them in the face. And just like that, detectives think they know exactly what they are walking into, but no one expected what they are about to find. The following few minutes will be very graphic. Please fast forward if you need to. Yeah, officers followed that smell to the corner and under some wicker baskets, yes, those baskets, is the big blue barrel with the lid wrapped in plastic. They open it up and there is Tim's body. Well, the lower half of his body only. Floating inside a stew of hydrochloric acid, decomposed body fat, chunks of meat, and blackish-brown material. The official cause of death is the combined effects of acute chloroform exposure and hydrochloric acid immersion. But the million-dollar question here, was he still alive? Sadly, 
It seems like the answer is yes. If you listen to one of the only two people who will know, well, three counting Tim, I guess, James is talking now. Here's his story. Larissa tells him she needs more of her things from Tim's house, only this time he's going to be home. So they'll need to chloroform him so he won't remember. But that's not the whole plan. They drive Larissa's truck to Tim's house, walk up to his door. James hides around the corner and Larissa calls Tim to tell him, hey, come outside. Your son is sick. Tim is worried but suspicious even then. He knows her. So he grabs that gun and hides it in the couch in case this is just a trick. She puts on such a good show, though, so he unfortunately opens the door. James jumps out and tases Tim with a stun gun, trying to get control so they can chloroform him. There's a struggle, a headlock. The chloroform comes out, and Tim ends up on the floor inside his house, just about unconscious, but he's still moaning. They zip tie his hands and feet and load him into his own truck. They drive both trucks back to Larissa's house. That's when the barrel comes out and they stuff Tim in head first. James says Tim is still making noises. So according to his story, Tim is still alive. Larissa pours acid into the barrel then. A few bottles in, the fumes are so strong, she even has to stop. So on goes the lid, and they move the barrel with Tim inside to the garden shed where it sits. So two days later, when James and Larissa are hot tubbing it, Tim is just feet away dissolving in the shed. Larissa can't keep it there now that police are in the picture, so she and James move the barrel to the lab. That's where the lid comes off and more acid goes in. This time, they're having trouble getting him to fit, so James says Larissa cuts his ankles until they go all the way in. But she can't leave the stinky barrel at the lab while she's on her trip, so enter that U-Haul thanks to Leslie. Police say Larissa took the barrel from the shed to the storage unit by herself. She zhushed it up a bit, put those baskets on top, and voila, it's right where they find it on Monday. James tells them a lot of details, including where to find the stun gun. Hint, it's tucked inside a porta potty, just when you thought it couldn't get any grosser. In his bedroom, they find the receipt for the stun gun and a receipt for the zip ties conveniently tacked up to a cork board. So uh, they're not exactly master criminals hiding the evidence. It's time to go get the mastermind of this one, though. Police meet Larissa at the airport on Wednesday and arrest her. She never got to finish that dream vacay with Tyler. So Larissa and James are both charged with first-degree murder. Larissa's charge was upgraded to special circumstances because prosecutors say she killed Tim for financial gain. And that goes to motive, too. Although prosecutors don't have to prove it, I don't care. People want to know. And in this case, Tim technically owned 49% of her lab, which was worth a lot of money. And Larissa didn't think he deserved a penny of it. Prosecutors say she just wanted it all. The lab, the house, full custody of Tyler. And that's why she had to ultimately get rid of him. Since this case is so sensational, it got a lot of media attention so much that Larissa got a change of venue. James did not, though. He goes on trial first. He's convicted and gets life in prison without parole. Then Larissa, in 2008, her trial is in Van Nuys, California, just north of Beverly Hills in Bel Air. So a little different scene than small town Clovis. 
She takes the stand in her own defense and blames it all on James. Jurors don't buy it. She also gets a life sentence without parole. During her victim impact statement, their daughter Kristen says, In your quest to become a dominating power freak, you became your own demon. You have hurt me for so many years and probably smiled inside. But look who's smiling now. Spoiler alert, things have changed. Hear what Larissa recently said to me from prison that shocked me coming up. But first, more about the police interview that cracked this case with the detective who found the cell phone. Next. You're listening to Crime Casters Network. I am so happy to be joined today by retired Sergeant Vince Wybert of the Clovis Police Department, who is intrinsically linked to the Larissa Schuster case, for better or for worse. Detective, I know you can't ever escape this case, right? As, as you said before, I am forever intrinsically linked to this case in some way. Uh, and it comes up every now and again in conversation. Uh, because if you do an internet search, my name will come up connected to it. And so we meet new people, we connect with people. And what do you do? You always want to find out what somebody's all about. So people do a check and then they always want to know about it. So they'll ask questions. So it does come up. Um, I find that uh, being out of law enforcement now for a while, you tend not to have these things dwell in the back of your mind. So we're able to put them behind us. So especially a case like this where we were able to get resolution uh, for the victims and go ahead and see that justice was served. Well, I have to give you props, Detective, because you certainly outsmarted one of the smartest criminals I've ever covered, at least book smart, of course, right? How did you know she had that cell phone when she walked into your office with that yellow and white soccer mom outfit on? How did you know? Um, it became apparent to me that she had something that she was holding back and that she wasn't giving us. And as we started asking her questions about, you know, any phone calls to Tim, anything like that around the time of the disappearance, um, and she denied it, it was simply, well, show us, let us know, give us some proof of that so we can know, you know, kind of what's going on and help send us in the right direction. And uh, at that point, she told us that she didn't have her cell phone on her. But previously, her, she had told us that her young son uh, was being babysat. And as a parent myself, I found it very unusual that you would leave uh, to go ahead and go to potentially hours worth of conversation without a way to contact your child. So I asked her where it was. She said she didn't have it, decided to go out and take a break and see if I could find it. And there was only one car out front, uh, figured it was hers. There was a cell phone on the dash in the middle, picked up my phone, called her number. Sure enough, it rang. So we confronted her about it. And then, yes, in that soccer mom outfit, she brought it back in with us. And as she was manipulating it, you know, she was just really obviously nervous. As a, uh, as a police officer for years, you just kind of learn to read people. You know, we've all been on the planet for however many years we have. We know when somebody's nervous. We know when somebody's being dishonest. And she clearly, clearly had something to hide and wasn't telling the truth. Thinking about James and Larissa in the hot tub that night, with wine while Tim was literally dissolving in the garden shed right there. Is that one of the craziest things that you've ever heard in all of your, your 30 years with Clovis PD? Yeah, it's crazy. It's also kind of icky. I, I just, uh, it just speaks to the evil that was involved in this case. 
I mean, the hot tub is in this smallish backyard. It's only a few feet away from the shed that the drum that Tim was slowly dissolving in was resting. Um, and this, uh, this hot tub uh, party was immediately after our interview with Larissa. You know, again, we, we released her because we didn't know if this was a homicide, if this was a missing person, if it's a suicide. We couldn't say. So we ended up releasing her. When you think about the links Larissa went to, like after the fact, where she's moving the barrel, well, I should say Tim's body, from the garden shed to the lab to the storage unit, did she really think she was going to get away with it? Well, obviously. I. You know, one of the things nobody ever thinks they're going to get caught. Uh, everyone thinks that they are going to be the one who outsmarts everyone else and has the perfect plan. And she had planned this for some time uh, based upon the computer record searches that we did, came up with evidence that she for weeks had been looking into ways to dispose of the body. Um, so, yeah, clearly she thought that she had this foolproof plan. Uh, I suspect that she felt that this would never be treated as a homicide investigation and that it would just be a missing persons case potentially as in her mind there would be no evidence to ever suggest that anything bad had happened to Tim. Knowing what I do about Larissa back then and then when I wrote to her she wrote back and you know had this big huge change of heart I was pretty shocked. Are you surprised? Um, well, I am very pleased to hear that she has admitted to uh, her involvement in the, the crime. Um, I don't know that she's admitted fully to the degree of her involvement that we were able to uncover. And it's very clear that what she's doing is not a true mea culpa, not a true repentance. But she says, yep, I did this horrible thing. I feel so bad for it. And then goes into, to paraphrase, I'm a wonderful person, let me out of prison because I can do so much good things for the community. As you read and your audience will get to share the, this, uh, this document, um, it is a small amount of, of uh, vocalized repentance and then a large amount of the benefit that she can bring to the community. So just the sheer weight on I'm sorry versus uh, let me out, look at me. Uh, she's in the process to seek clemency. Uh, the you know, the temperature, the climate in California right now is one of decriminalization and letting people go and clemency. And um, so, yeah, now would be the time for her to go ahead and make a move. And I know we focus a lot on the sensationalism of this case and this story, because how could you not, right? But when it comes down to it, like I said off the top, Tim really was the ultimate nice guy. I mean, everyone I've ever interviewed has said that he was like a saint. So do you ever think about that when you think about the horrible details of this case? Was that even harder? Yeah, it's not even something that I could fathom. The only hope that I would have is that, um, and we really weren't able to find this out one way or the other, is that there was some degree of chloroform toxicity that had occurred that had basically made us that he didn't have to suffer through uh, the burning and dissolving and then the aspiration of the acid fumes um, because that's just, uh, just absolutely grotesque and terrible and um, just something you can't even imagine. You know, we found, when we found and opened the, uh, the 
the drum, the body had been completely dissolved from the waist up because they placed him in placed him in head first. So that's uh, that's a pretty terrible thing, you know, pretty terrible thing. So I can't even imagine what that would be like. I can only hope that he didn't have to actually experience any of the pain. But no matter what, he still had to experience the fear of people coming into his house, attacking him at two o'clock in the morning, wrestling him to the ground, knocking him out. Uh, you know, he did have to experience all of that. And, uh, you know, did he wake up at some other point? I don't know. Um, you know, but still, that's a lot of panic. A last thing to, to, to remember, last thing to experience before you die. Mm. It I think we all collectively can say we we truly hope Tim didn't have to suffer. And Detective, at least Tim did get justice, thanks in large part to you and all of the other investigators on the case who really did an amazing job from the beginning on this one. I think the media, I don't even think we ever gave you guys a hard time on this one because you did such a great job. So thank you so much for being with us today. We all hope you enjoy the rest of your retirement. And I will share the details of what Larissa had to say from prison next. Grab your drink, Crimecasters. This is the part of the show where we take you behind the scenes and peel back the layers of this investigation. Alicia, <laughs> this woman is crazy. Okay, so obviously that is the first. This made international headlines. It was splashed everywhere. It's kind of sexy to see like Acid Queen of California. So obviously sold a lot of papers, people got invested. But at the end of the day, when you think the nicest guy in the world, Mr. Mom, can be burned in a vat of acid alive, it's like horrifying, horrifying. When Larissa testified in the trial, by the way, right. and when she took the stand, they tried to they were trying to kind of offset maybe those horrible voicemails and, and that image that you have of just the headline, right? They softened her up. She was softer spoken on the stand, no makeup, her hair was just brushed back. But before we get into the, the letters and the confession that we have to share with everyone today, I want you to take a look at a picture that I have of Larissa recent picture. I know you think I'm going to hand you a mugshot, but explain what that is. <laughs> she actually looks like a nice grandma. and Or even a little younger. Like, I wouldn't... How is this a prison photo? What's because your first she's reaction? sitting with a golden retriever. An adorable golden retriever. New Nikes, beautiful furniture, a mantle. I mean, so... She has more of a backdrop than we do. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> we should shoot our uh, show at the prison. So basically, she is this, she's involved in the puppy program. There's a puppy program in prison. No, <gasps> There's I have a done, puppy program. I have done stories on that program, by the way. Okay, well, I want to so, sign me up. I'm not. Do I need to commit a crime to that. like hang out with golden retrievers all day? I'm, this isn't a debate about prison programs. Just saying that this picture is a glamour shot 
So she now has got like turned up the glam in prison. It is. And, Remember uh, those glamour shots? Like yes. Back in I don't know. Was we'll it like put it up on our website 90s? so you guys can see? But it. Yeah. that's what it reminds yeah. me of. Is when you would she go looks to the great. I was like she she told me about this and I looked at her picture. I was like wow you you look great. I I mean I don't I don't know what else to say. It's it's shocking. So this year right now marks the time where Larissa has been in prison as long as she was married to Tim. So 19 years. She's 62 years old right now. Okay. And remember, the crime was 2003, but she was convicted in 2008. She seems to have adjusted to prison life. Oh, not only has she adjusted, but when, when I looked at all of the programs that she's participated in, Ronnie, I swear to you, from the inside, she's accomplished way more than I have on the outside. She really has. I mean, especially with the pandemic. I feel like inferior. I was like, wow, I'm impressed with the resume. And I'll tell you about how I know about all of that. But obviously, this is like a resume because what she's doing, as you heard the detective say, she is setting the stage for a possible commutation. And I want to get into what she said because, listen, this is this was shocking to me like when i wrote to her we we often reach out to the prisoners for these stories to get yeah. their perspective see if there's anything new and since i covered this case a little bit back then i wanted to know have you had a change of heart and she was shocked to hear from me i was even more shocked to hear from her because she's taken responsibility uh, let me just say this is not something that i thought was ever a possibility i never yeah. thought i would be sitting here telling you about Larissa accepting responsibility for killing Tim. She always blamed it on James and said she knew nothing about it. Well, I wonder if she would be doing that if she knew she wasn't getting out of prison. No. Why would she need to? Why would she need to? So right. she says, unless she wants to make amends. I'm, I'm, I believe the best in people sometimes. So first read this listen to this with an open mind she says during this time i have had many opportunities to reflect upon my life my actions reactions and the choices i made that led me to prison serving a life without the possibility of parole sentence and then she starts with what you may want to uh play a violin for it's like as a little girl i grew up living on a farm in the rural midwest and it goes on and on and on where she basically says her and her brother's her parents had high expectations for them. They had to help out on the family farm. They were responsible for the cattle, hogs, and chickens. You know, it's, there's a lot of hard work. She says her father was absent much of the time and was abusive. She said she felt unloved, et cetera, et cetera. Well, a lot of people have rough childhoods. It doesn't make them a killer. Exactly. So, and even in this, and I want to get to the, the good stuff, but let me just say, even in this, there is a little bit of a zinger on Tim, even in this. So she says, I believed sex meant love and subsequently settled for my husband, Tim, thinking I wasn't worthy of anyone else. Aww. Let me just say, poor Tim. He was the best guy ever. And they were married yeah, like a long time. I know. They had two beautiful children. Listen, I... So she gets into now the part where she wanted a lot of things she never had growing up, like the big house, the cars, to be important, to be noticed. I thought that was really um, something big. She says, I was unfaithful to my husband, became a liar, and planned the murder of my husband of 19 years. So here's the good stuff. 
She gets into it, she says, when I finally came out of denial and accepted responsibility for the murder of Tim, I was hit with the stark realization of the far-reaching impact my actions had on my family, friends, and community. Today, I see and admit to myself and others who I was in the past and the person who I have become. She says, even just saying that out loud, she wouldn't have been able to do that a couple years ago. So this is all new. This is oh. all new. Took her quite a while to get here. But here is the money paragraph. It's music to my ears. I take full responsibility for the murder of my husband, Tim. The horrible decisions and actions I have made have destroyed and affected the lives of many people, including my own. I had no right to end his life. <sighs> I, please talk for a minute. I just need to bask in. <laughs> this confession makes but, me so happy. <sighs> but we know she's manipulating the system. She's, she knows that uh, if she gets the opportunity to go before the parole board, she is going to have to take responsibility for her crime. So she's already setting the stage for trying to get out of prison. I wish I could argue with you, but at the end she says, I am praying that I will be granted a commutation and for a chance to earn my way out so I can help other women avoid the horrible choices I have made. I plan to devote the rest of my life to help women make better choices in their lives. She may be able to help you, Ronnie. Is there something you're going through? Well, she could help I mean, me with cooking because she is the Martha Stewart oh, of prison. So let me tell you about this. I'm glad you brought that up. So during the trial, one of my good friends, Nicole Garcia, was a lead reporter on this case, and she got some national publicity because she did the first like live blog. Remember when <laughs> that was so day. cool? Yeah. Live blog of the trial, and it was like everyone tuned in, and everyone was like, oh, I got to see what's on the blog. So anyway, I know she would so much appreciate hearing about this change of heart with Larissa, but um, speaking of blogs, Larissa has started a blog in prison with three other Life Without Parolees. They're called LWAPs, they call themselves, and um, they post a lot of recipes. Look, I'm all for people being productive. Just because you're behind bars doesn't mean you can't be- 100%. Productive. Especially if you're gonna and get out. I mean, all of those rehabilitation programs are so important. I think she was brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, she's a really smart lady. Abs a biochemist, and not just a biochemist, but a biochemist who was able to have the business acumen to start her own business and really, thrive they had two kids yeah does she talk to them at oh all? they're they've had a change of heart according to her letters to me she says that both of them visit she has constant contact with them her parents support her her brother support so she says that she has the support of everyone now you heard what her daughter said at the trial mm -hmm. things have changed so the victim impact statement things have changed um, I, I did print out some recipes for you that Larissa has. Um, a macaroni salad, chicken rigatoni. I thought that you would make one for me. Chinese <laughs> yeah. sausage, shiitake, mushroom, rice dish, and a personal pizza. Now there is um, one of her fellow prisoners uh, posted a cheesecake recipe, which I know that we love to enjoy together. But 
it's like Ritz crackers, creamer packets, Sprite. I don't think that that's what you had in mind. Well, they um, have to be creative. It's not like they're I, going to the local grocery store. I and do appreciate up the, the, um, the statement that was put out with these recipes. They said, yeah. to truly have an incarcerated food experience, you must always have a stinger. I'll tell you what that is in a second. A cheese grater, which you can use an Ajax or a Comet top. Small trash bags, a can lid, hard plastic paper divider to use as a cutting board, microwave, and an open mind. <laughs> okay, the stinger says to make one, all you need is cold water from the tap, an electrical outlet, nail clippers, a power cord, and the courage to drop a live wire into a cup of water. <laughs> I don't know what to say. but. They're doing makeup too. Like, have you seen the makeup tutorials, the prison makeup tutorials? Yeah, they're actually pretty good. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I've gotten a few tips, but they take like M&Ms and Skittles. Yeah. They melt them down in the water. They also take uh, greeting cards that their family sends them. And you can actually take the some Vaseline and mix it with like the glitter and you get some beautiful eyeshadow. Um, one of the girls said that she loves the the they get magazines in there right like cosmo and they can take the the best one they said is the t-mobile ad because that pink is very universal and flattering kind of who are you doing your so. makeup for when you're in prison well you're posing with puppies and you're putting it on your blog so listen we're laughing some of this is comical because it's such a dichotomy and you think about the horrible crime and then you want someone to suffer for that, right? right? It's like you don't, you want them to suffer and be upset and constantly, and then we see things like this and, and it's easy to be like, she should be suffering. But she because has kids. Because you think about the painful way that he died. The what worst way ever. What were last moments like? And mm. to think you have kids with this person. Yeah, and I mean, he truly was, I can tell you, the ultimate nice guy everyone i talked to across the board nobody mm. could even think of anything negative to say about him and they the hardest part about all of this is that at the end of his life is when he got his voice and i, I mm. am i really believe that's why it happened because he had taken her stuff she had bullied him for so long and then at the end of his life his friends say he was finally like larissa you know what i'm done I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's when she chose to end his life. So it's like at least he was able to get his voice. But unfortunately, that could have led to his demise. What are the chances, do you think, that she will get out of prison? Okay. Ronnie, what do I always say to you? If you're going to kill someone, if you're going to commit a heinous crime, where, do you, where should you do it? California. Exactly. Crazy things are happening. Crazy things are happening in the prison system. There is this shift to like rehabilitation and release, which is great for a lot of prisoners. Especially but, for the ones that are getting out because we do want them yes. to be a, you know, a productive part of society right. and not end up back into the system or right. re-victimizing someone else. But you got to believe that there are some crimes that when you commit them, you know that this is it for you. And are you a danger to society? Has Larissa rehabilitated herself? Stranger things have happened. I, I could see um, possibly if they reverse the life without parole thing, which Scott Peterson got a new sentencing hearing. Yeah. 
Larissa could too. Stranger things have happened. So if I could see her getting in front of the parole board and arguing the list of her resume that she's put up on her blog and saying, I can help women, I can see someone saying, especially if her kids come out and say, we want our mom back. Again, stranger things have happened, but it, it, can't, it can't end here. I know people are outraged at home. Well, I'm thinking <laughs> if she gets out, she starts dating again. How do you have that conversation? Oh, By the way, don't Google I've been me. in prison for the last 20 years because I put me. my husband in acid. We'll just hope that that's not her screen name on her uh, dating app. So. Right. So with that, we want to know what you think about this case. Should they have some of these programs in prison? And should someone that has been sentenced to life without parole actually be able to get out? Join us on our social media and keep the conversation going. It's time to get schooled by the teen sensation of true crime. Here's our resident boy genius with this week's sidebar. Hi, my name is Ryan Kester. I'm a pre-law junior at the University of Texas at Dallas, and ever since I was nine years old, I've been attending trials, researching cases, and pouring over hundreds of thousands of pages of courtroom evidence and police documents, all in the name of true crime. On today's episode of Sidebar, we're going to be discussing the topic, the change of venue. So what is a change of venue? Typically, you'll see a change of venue in very high-profile cases where the defense feels that their client has been so prejudiced by pretrial publicity that they are unable to get a fair trial in the county in which the crime took place. A very popular case that experienced a change of venue was the O.J. Simpson case. The murders took place in Brentwood and the trial was supposed to take place in Santa Monica, but the prosecution actually elected to have the trial moved to Los Angeles for fear that the Santa Monica community had too much of an attachment to O.J. Simpson. In a case where the defense felt like the pretrial publicity was so overwhelming, the Casey Anthony trial. There, the trial didn't actually move. Rather, jurors were selected from two counties over from Orlando in the name of getting Casey Anthony a fair trial, which obviously on the defense's part was a smart move. Typically, change of venues don't involve moving the trial extremely far away, but there are some notable exceptions, such as the case of Walker Rayleigh, who was a Dallas man who was put on trial for the attempted murder of his wife. He was a very prominent televangelist, and that trial was actually moved several hundred miles down away from Dallas to San Antonio, Texas. The reason being that, again, there was simply too much publicity. Typically what a judge weighs when they're considering a change of venue is not distance, rather avoiding the feeling of it happened in my own backyard. Typically jurors who are exposed to a lot of that sensationalism and almost fear mongering because of the proximity of the murder are more likely to vote with emotion as opposed to the evidence that's presented in court. So the significance of that and of the change of venue is, again, simply to ensure that the defendant and the state get the fair trial they are entitled to. Well, I have to go work on my English essay. Otherwise, my professor is going to be very upset with me. So I will see you guys next week on the next episode of Sidebar.
It is now time for closing arguments. And this week, I'm going to do it a little differently because Larissa shared so much of this. And it's a mystery like, how would she seamlessly transition if she got out? And here, in her own words, are some of the jobs that she could do. She says, I could work in drug treatment programs, helping those with addictions or addictive behavior. I could become certified in palliative care and work as an end-of-life doula. I could work as a secretary or typist for a variety of companies. She said she's proficient in Microsoft programs. As a degreed biochemist, I could consult in my area of expertise and work in quality assurance with companies regulated by the EPA or FDA. And she also says she could teach high school or college math because she wants to get a PhD in math while she's locked up. But remember, she says, in everything she does... I do it to honor my husband, Tim, who loved being a registered nurse and nurse manager where he could help other people heal both physically and mentally. So that is Larissa's final closing argument. Okay, here's my closing arguments. Do not let this crazy lady anywhere near kids. Really? You put your husband in asset. You were greedy. I had no closing arguments other than do not let her out. She's only playing this game and taking responsibility because she thinks there might be the chance that she could get out. She didn't care that she killed her husband. She was greedy. Stay locked up. But I do think they need to find a way to take people with special skills such as hers because she is really smart and find a way for them to contribute to society other than doing food blocks. Very well said, Ronnie. And again, let's leave with just thinking about the ultimate guy, nice guy, Timothy Schuster. No one, again, said a bad word about the guy. Let's keep him in our thoughts and his family because, man, there couldn't be a more gruesome crime and worse way to lose your loved one. So here's to Tim, and we'll see you all next week.